0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and it's Politics Day on the Takeaway,
2: y'all. It was the question baffling the nation's capital last week.
1: Negotiations around President Biden's social infrastructure and environmental package have dominated D.C. this week. On Thursday, ahead of his trip to Europe, Biden announced the framework for the package, which now comes in with a top line of about $1.75 trillion. So what's in and what's out? Well, here's how the president put it.
0: No one got everything
3: they wanted, including me. But that's what compromise is. That's consensus. And that's what I ran on.
1: The new proposal does not include a federal paid family and medical leave program or efforts to lower prescription drug pricing also it does not include free community college for all and while it expands medicare coverage to include hearing care it does not include vision or dental services but what makes this arduous process of legislative wrangling so unusual is that it's not a matter of partisan gridlock democrats are negotiating with themselves and the ones holding the most sway are the center-right holdouts in the party and yes You've heard their names before. Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. Now, this has frustrated many of their Democratic colleagues, some of whom have publicly questioned the senators' motives for months. Here's Representative Katie Porter at the end of September on MSNBC.
4: Until Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin are able to come up with what they want to do for their constituents, to do for the American people, until Senator Sinema stops being cute and starts doing her job and leading for the people of Arizona, we're simply not going to be able to move the president's agenda forward.
1: Representative Ilhan Omar on Democracy Now! just last week.
3: All Democrats are uh, essentially on board, except for these two uh, who are essentially doing the bidding of Big Pharma, um, Big Oil and uh, Wall Street.
1: And Representative Pramila Jayapal, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus on MSNBC on Wednesday. There are also programs that are going off the table. And yet we have two senators, one who can say, I don't want paid leave, a guy. Um, Who can say, I don't want paid leave. Another who can say, I don't want to roll back the Trump tax cuts. Senator Manchin's motivations, well, they seem to be clear. Look, he represents West Virginia, a state where Donald Trump won by 39 percentage points in 2020. And it's also a state dominated by the coal industry. Sinema, on the other hand, is a first term Democratic senator from Arizona. And President Biden carried her state was known for rarely holding town halls with constituents or taking questions from the press. She started her political career as a progressive Democrat in the Arizona House of Representatives, but now is seen as one of the more conservative Democrats in the U.S. Senate. During her brief time in office, she's gained a reputation for being particularly inscrutable.
2: It was the question baffling the nation's capital last week. What does Kirsten Cinema
4: want?
1: Last week five members of Senator Kirsten Sinema's Veterans Advisory Council publicly stepped down, calling her one of the principal obstacles to progress. We're joined now by one of those former members, Sylvia Gonzalez-Endersh, an Air Force veteran. Welcome to The Takeaway, Sylvia.
2: Hello, and thank you very much for having me. Absolutely.
1: Let's just start by understanding the work of the Veterans Advisory Council. Like what kinds
2: of things did you do and, and what did you, why did you want to join in the first place? Well, I wanted to join because I wanted to be a voice for women's veterans issues and and, and you know represent um, you know the concerns that we had. And what,
1: just to help us to understand, so is this like you all are meeting regularly with her staff? Are you meeting with the senator? I just, you know, I know not everyone understands all the ins and outs of how sort of, um, you know, how a senator gains information.
2: Well, it's a it's a voluntary uh, council, but you do have to uh, apply and be accepted to her council. Uh, we, we were supposed to be having regular meetings, but the pandemic did uh, upset that a bit and we had t- changed to Zoom we, you know, tell her what we feel about what's going on in the veteran community. We talk about uh, veterans legislation and what she's doing in in those regards. Got it.
1: Now, before the decision to um, to step down, I'm wondering if you had ever felt a sense of frustration in this work that you were doing?
2: Well, you know, veterans are citizens like everyone else. And so our um, issues really overlap the general population as well. Uh, veterans are a very diverse organization uh, of all different people. And, you know, we we really feel that since we have put forward, you know, put our lives on the line, that we want to make sure that veterans have protections. Uh, you know, f- the, the, the in- incidents now of all the voter suppression laws are really going to affect veterans, especially disabled veterans, veterans with PTSD, Mail-in ballots, you know, those are essential. And also PTSD veterans cannot stand in hotlines outside around crowds without having some some consequences. So we're very concerned about that.
1: Oh, that's so helpful. I'm not sure that I've ever um, heard it framed in particularly that way. I think we, um, you know, we hear um, frequently about how um, some of these uh, voter issues impact some kinds of communities, but I'm not sure I've ever heard it particularly framed around uh, concerns for veterans. Uh, So can you tell us what is your, what was your motivation um, for stepping down? And given that it was a handful of you all, did you have a conversation about it first or were these five individual decisions?
2: No, it was a collaboration between all of us. Um, It was just a feeling of frustration that we had had. And then I reached out to some of the others and they mirrored the same concerns. So we really didn't know how we could reach her personally as far as on the council. So, you know, this was what we felt, you know, we were just making a statement that we were very concerned about these issues and that she wasn't listening to her constituents.
1: Um, do you feel like um, stepping down helped her to hear you? I- I'm wondering maybe what her response has been. I know you, you sent us a, a voicemail of um, the senator uh, responding. It sounded like a very polite um, kind of response. I- I'm just wondering
2: how you heard that. I heard it as a, a simple acknowledgement, but not any addressing any of our concerns.
1: Um. Obviously, um, US senators have large staffs. And so when I hear you say that you were having trouble reaching her, even though you were a member of the advisory council, I'm wondering if that is um, part of how the the senator's office is run. Like, is it just sort of multiple um, gatekeepers in order to have a conversation or express your views?
2: I really can't say exactly how it all works. We did have a, um, you know, a liaison that was supposed to be, you know, our liaison, but it's usually it was usually a one way conversation of her sending us information on what the senator wanted us to do, whether it was to show up at an event or to just give some feedback on whatever small thing that she wanted an answer on. So you mentioned,
1: um, you know, being asked to show up at events. Certainly the senator is known for rarely holding town halls. I think maybe especially for a, a first-term um, senator, typically lots of town halls with constituents are kind of part of the profile for a first-term office holder. Um, I, I wonder if you have a sense, um, again, being on the advisory council, and, and as you pointed out, being a constituent, right? Being a veteran means being a, a member of the general public. Uh, do you have a sense of sort of either why that was, or... Maybe how um, other members of the community of, of Arizona feel about uh, that lack of access.
2: Well, I mean, that was another frustrating thing, seeing the 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 all the videos of people trying to talk to her and she's ignoring them. And it was very sad to see that that she did not acknowledge or recognize the actual constituents that she's representing. Um.
1: Talk to me a bit about um, what you see as the most important issues facing the state of Arizona right now. So. You know, let's walk away from the reconciliation bill for just a moment and just really talk about if you were, uh, if you and maybe some of the other members of this advisory council were able to kind of make a top 10 list of these are the things that really matter uh, to people living in Arizona, what might be on that list? And um, and in what ways do you feel the senator either is or, or is not representing those uh, interests?
2: Well, you know, the biggest thing is the voter suppression that is going on here in the state legislature, you know, that trying to to do make all kinds of changes to the voting laws. And, you know, voter restriction and voter suppression are essentially a huge detriment to the democratic process and to the democratic representation of our citizens. You can't have a a strong democracy without voting rights and without everybody having a vote that's recognized and then the other thing is, you know, there's lots of concerns, uh, uh, you know, about the prescription uh, drug prices that she, when she ran, she ran on negotiating those prices and bringing that down. I mean, we have citizens and veterans who have to decide whether they're going to pay their rent or pay their their prescriptions. It's, it's heartbreaking. And it's sad to think that We as her constituents cannot really reach her with the seriousness and gravity of these concerns
1: some people in um who are sort of political observers whether it's members of the media or others who are kind of watching everything happening with the reconciliation bill uh, have said i think as i said in the intro that that she feels inscrutable a bit that um it's not completely clear given that arizona was carried by president biden and given that she's a first term senator sort of what her motivations are in this broader reconciliation process um, I'm wondering, again, if you have, uh, and, and these don't have to be, I understand, expert insights, but just your your feeling. Is this, do you think about lobbying? Do you think this is about um, seeking higher office at some point? Do you think that she feels that she's actively representing the interests of her constituents in some way that maybe we just don't
2: quite understand from the outside? Well I think that the the word that you used inscrutable is an excellent exa- example of how we all feel we we don't know we don't know what's going on we have no idea what her priorities are we, you know observationally we see her taking you know trips and you know big pharma donations and it is very concerning. What we can see doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, and it doesn't go along with what we elected her to do. It's, it's disconcerting, and she is inscrutable as far as that's concerned to, to me. I mean, we can only make our own personal assumptions, and some of those would not be very, you know, complimentary.
1: Sylvia Gonzalez Anders is a U.S. Air Force veteran and also a former member of Senator Kirsten Sinema's Veterans Advisory Council. Thank you for joining
2: us and for giving us uh, your perspective on all of this. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate you bringing our voice to the for- forefront.
1: President Biden is traveling through Europe this weekend, meeting with world leaders at the Group of 20 Summit in Rome and the U.N.'s Climate Summit. The president was hoping this trip would be a bit of a global victory lap and he'd be able to point to more than half a trillion dollars set aside for addressing climate change in the Democrats' reconciliation package. But with negotiations still ongoing among congressional Democrats, President Biden has had to slow his role a bit as the global community is probably going to be a bit more skeptical that the U.S. is indeed a global leader on the issue of climate change. For more, I'm joined now by Anthony Adragna, congressional reporter for Politico and author of The Congress Minutes, Politico's guide to what's happening on Capitol Hill. Thanks for being here, Anthony.
0: Pleasure to be with you.
1: So President Biden had to delay the start of his trip to Europe because of negotiations over the reconciliation package. Do you think he was expecting Democrats to maybe move a a bit more swiftly with this plan?
0: He may have been, but I think progressives have been really crystal clear. So nobody really should have been surprised by the outcome earlier this week. What happened is he came to the Capitol, made his pitch, tried to get people on board to vote for this bipartisan infrastructure bill, saying, look, we got a framework here for this big bill. $1.75 trillion, huge investment. But progressives have said for weeks, if not months, that they want to see the legislative text they held to their guns. So I I think the outcome was not terribly surprising, given what progressives have been saying.
1: What does this tell you about progressives? President Biden's sort of ability to, to manage this party um, and to, uh, to move forward on what, what he as an executive, um, you know, is going to have sort of one legacy that is critical to him. But, you know, these members of, of, of the House and Senate, they face re-election on a, on a different schedule than the president does.
0: Totally fair question. I think people tend to minimize the challenge that President Biden has here. His caucus ranges from progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar. To a Democrat, Joe Manchin, that represents a state that former President Trump won by 40 points, the ideological differences in this caucus are vast, and he's got a huge challenge in trying to manage everybody. The fact that we're even at a point where we're talking about a $1.75 trillion bill is pretty remarkable, and it's certainly been messy, and Democrats have certainly set themselves a bunch of deadlines that they've blown through, but the fact they're even at the precipice of being able to do something like this, to me, is really quite stunning.
1: If you watch reporting these days, it's about, well, what's out? Um, But of course, none of it was ever in initially in the sense that it wasn't a, a matter of law uh, initially. And so I wonder if there is um, sort of a, just a strategic aspect here with starting with something uh, that was so big and had lots and lots of different, you know, kind of connected interest groups and uh, nonprofit organizations and all of those sorts of things. And, and everybody obviously wants to keep as much of their piece in this pie as possible.
0: That's exactly right. And I think part of the challenge for Democrats is they're really looking at this bill to do A decade plus worth of priorities all at once that's really challenging part of the frustration is i think to galvanize progressives get them on board democrats talked about a top line number 3.5 trillion dollars worth of spending and then they have been sort of wagging their fingers at the media and saying you always talk about the top line but that's what they've been leaning on throughout this process to try to get progressives excited about this bill but you're right everything is interconnected and these are all crucial priorities for the Democrats. And so when you have to pick and choose amongst them, that's going to lead inevitably to people being unhappy.
1: Clearly, the climate is um, at the core for so many within the Democratic Party. Um, How are progressives feeling right now about the climate measures that are that are actually pretty likely uh, to remain in the final version of the reconciliation package?
0: I think I'd say cautiously optimistic. I think what's been remarkable throughout this whole process is somebody who's covered climate change for the better part of a decade is compared to a decade ago. The party's been remarkably united about climate change throughout this entire process, with the notable and important exception of Senator Joe Manchin. However, at the end of the day, what it looks like is they're poised to invest about a third of this overall bill in climate change measures. Even the more centrist members in the House centrist members like Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, who's been a holdout on a lot of other pieces of this, have all been really excited about climate change. And so we're talking about $555 billion of climate investments. We're still hemming out the the final details here. The details obviously matter. Um, but you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, at least a five times greater investment in climate change measures than the, the U.S. Congress has ever done before. And so I think that's why progressives are feeling cautiously optimistic about how this package is shaping up
1: do you have a sense of what shifted that that has led to for the democratic party being more of a consensus issue
0: i mean the the problem's gotten worse it's harder to deny when you have wildfires out west severe drought at the same time you're seeing flooding in the east coast hurricanes devastating the gulf coast i think the science has gotten only clearer. we heard over the summer from the u.n that this is a code red moment for humanity and for climate change and so people throughout the ideological spectrum are seeing that voters care more about this issue and that we can't afford to delay action anymore. And so I think that's what's galvanizing the party to make these kinds of uh, really vast investments in addressing the problem.
1: Now, clearly, President Biden will be doing what presidents typically love to do, um, which is spending the weekend um, in an international space, right? This is the one of the few places where presidents don't have to do quite so much negotiating with their, um, you know, within their own party, they're able to really represent their nation. Uh, I'm wondering how President Biden is feeling relative to or, or what your sense is about sort of how he's viewed in this moment, um, and how the US is viewed in this moment, particularly around uh, climate issues.
0: It's a great question. I I think the trust issue with the U.S. is going to remain and linger, but I think the case that the U.S. officials hope to make uh, when President Biden arrives in Scotland for this conference is, look, the legislating process is messy. You all get that. You all have your own internal legislative struggles in your countries, but we're on the precipice of making the biggest investment in climate change in history and certainly far greater than we've ever done before. And it may be a little bit messy. There may be a few more hiccups along the way, but we're going to do it. It's the writings on the wall is how a couple of senators described it to me this week. And that's the case that I think President Biden's going to make. Look, we're not there quite yet, but we're going to be there. And so count on the U.S. delivering on these sorts of climate investments that we've promised. And you all should up your climate commitments as a result of that.
1: Anthony Adragna is a congressional reporter for Politico. Thanks so much for joining The Takeaway, Anthony.
0: Thank you for having me
1: we're just one year out from the midterms and according to a new report from the higher heights leadership fund and the center for american women in politics there are both promising and troubling realities for black women in elected office in 2021 there are a record number of black women serving in state legislatures And more black women than ever before contested and won congressional seats in 2020. But after the governor of California appointed a man to fill the former Senate seat of now Vice President Kamala Harris, there's not a single black woman in the US Senate. Indeed, black women make up less than 5% of those elected to Congress, statewide executive offices, and state legislators. And when it comes to statewide executive offices, black women are severely underrepresented. No black woman has ever been elected governor. For more on all of this, we spoke to Kimberly peeler Allen, a visiting practitioner at the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. She's also co-founder of Higher Heights, a group focused on Black women's political power as voters and elected representatives.
3: Well, what we have seen continuously grow over the last several years is that we are growing in our state legislatures. Our representation is growing there. And we are now at eight Black women leading our top 100 cities, uh, which is a record. We are at parity because Black women are just about 8% of the national population. So to have eight Black Women leading our major metropolises—it's really a great opportunity there. So, you know, we're growing in Congress as well, uh, but there are still challenges. We don't have a Black woman in the U.S. Senate, and we have yet to elect a Black woman governor. So, there's still a lot to be done, but we're we're definitely making strides in in many places all across the country.
1: When we think about the very few women, black women, who have been elected to statewide office, there's obviously um, you know, the, the few black women who we've had serve in the U.S. Senate, including Carol Mosley Braun, and of course, our current vice president, Kamala Harris, who was elected to statewide office, both as uh, the California attorney general and then as a U.S. senator. What are some of the unique challenges black women face in terms of statewide office holding?
3: Well, I think one of the biggest challenges, particularly when it comes to statewide executive office, and I think there is promise there because of all of these women who have become uh, mayors, is the the role of the executive and what the electorate sees as leadership qualities. Uh, black women have, and women in general, have been seen as coalition builders and parts of a legislative body, and that's where we have really made a lot of our strides. But to have a Black woman uh, as the final decision maker, as the executive, uh, that has taken a lot of of challenge and a lot of work uh, shifting what leadership looks like, shifting our expectations of leadership traits, and I think that is where we're seeing some opportunity, and we have already seen um, quite a few women step out off the sidelines to say that they are running for uh, statewide executive office for 2021, and we have just in a couple of days in the state of Virginia, we have two Black women uh, who are running for lieutenant governor. So regardless of who wins that race, uh, we will be adding to this list. And we have 17 Black women in the history of this country who have been elected to statewide executive office and come next Tuesday, that number will grow to 18, whether it is um, Hala Ayala or Winsome Sears so in the state of Virginia. So there's tremendous opportunity there, but there is also the grappling with you know, what is the role for women? What is the role for black women? And how do we disrupt what has been the norm in almost 250 years that the majority of these positions have been held by white men?
1: Are, are the barriers about what voters think black women are capable of and the kinds of offices that black women should hold? Or is it about what probably primarily the Democratic Party and Democratic Party um, contributors think that black women should be doing?
3: I think it's a combination of both. I think there is definitely that initial primary of being able to uh, garner the resources that you need and I think the press is also part of the conversation and how they cover or not cover and completely ignore Black women candidates. Uh, and it is all about the exposure and a Black woman's ability to really control her narrative and reach her voters. And whether that is uh, determined, you know, by that first hurdle of uh, having some validators and amplifiers to support the candidacy through. Uh, you know, through endorsements and financial support, to getting covered by uh, by the press, and how that coverage is uh, you know is unbiased, uh, whether or not that coverage is unbiased, uh, and then being able to message to the electorate. To really be able to say, this is why you should elect me, not just because I am a Black woman, but because I am also a small business owner. I am also a veteran. I'm also, uh, you know, all of the multifacetedness of a Black woman's uh, life experience in this country. And we have seen Uh, you know, in the example of, you know, particularly, you know, I think the example that everyone immediately goes to is Stacey Abrams. Mm -hmm. Uh, Though she was not successful in 2018, she ran with the totality of her life experience. She talked about her family and and growing up and how she grew up. She talked about um, all of the the challenges in her life, as well as all of the successes. And people really gravitated towards that. Uh, But again, that was, that also came down to the ability for the electorate uh, in a you know highly partisan state of Georgia to shift their mindset about what their leadership, what their governor uh, would look like. Uh, so there is a, a tremendous opportunity there. There are a lot of hurdles, uh, just you know that you have to continuously, to be able to be successful. But I think as we have seen with uh, Vice President Harris and Stacey Abrams and people like Lauren Underwood uh, in Illinois, a congressional representative who represents a district that is uh, predominantly white, uh, we're seeing that there is a broader playbook of how this can be done. And I think women, Black women, are really drawing on that and saying, I don't have to run in a majority Black district to be successful, I don't have to hide uh, you know, parts of my identity or parts of my life experience, I can bring my full self to the table, uh, and we have seen you know the the amazing work that happens when you are bringing your full self to the table. Thinking about Cori Bush and and uh, the the protests that she led on the uh, steps of the Capitol and how that was able to really move legislation forward because she was able to really draw on her life experience, which ultimately makes for better policy when you have a. Wider variety of life experiences around decision-making tables. So I think it is it is a continuous progression of of obstacles, but a, also a continuous progression of tremendous opportunity.
1: Kimberly Peeler Allen is a visiting practitioner at the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University and a co-founder of Higher Heights. And Kimberly, if you you know if you end up working with a candidate for any of these kinds of offices who wants to come talk with us. We'd be
3: happy to have her. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. We'll definitely keep that in mind. All right, thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank Thank you.
1: In the town of Hoffman, North Carolina, residents are kept up at night with the sound of artillery fire and explosions as a result of the military training complex that moved into their neighborhood. The veteran journalist Laura Flanders talked with some of the residents there for The Laura Flanders Show, which airs on PBS stations across the country.
4: That's when the bombing
3: started. It was one thing when they started shooting. We could deal with that. But when they started doing the breaching, blowing up stuff to open doors, it's like living in a battle zone. Yes, it's explosions.
2: Yes, it's no You're laying in the bed at nine asleep, and
1: all of a sudden, it's boom. Now, North Carolina is home to eight military bases, including the largest base in the U.S., Fort Bragg, and 700,000 military veterans, as well as multiple private tactical training centers, some of which are open to civilians who want to learn survival skills and how to shoot guns and carry out explosions. According to Laura's reporting, some Black residents in the community are feeling on edge since these military-like training centers have opened up in their neighborhoods. Especially after January 6, when people begin to wonder if some of the capital insurrectionists could have been trained at facilities just like these. So... Let's talk about it. We've got Laura Flanders, host of The Laura Flanders Show, and Christina Davis-McCoy, secretary of the Hoke County NAACP. Laura and Christina, welcome to you both.
5: Good to be with you, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. So, Laura, can you
1: tell us about the Oak Grove Military Industrial Complex uh, in North Carolina?
5: Well, this is just one of many, and I think while this is an important North Carolina story, it's one that has national implications and takes place within a national context. I mean, we have privatized our U.S. military, and in so doing, we have militarized our populace. I mean, think about it. When those troops came back from Afghanistan, private contractors outnumbered soldiers and so-called sworn professionals 10 to 1. And according to the Cost of War Project and others, more than half of the Pentagon spending that we've put into the military over the last 20 years has gone to private contractors, lots of them building planes and tanks and so on, but a lot of the rest offering everything from data and digital management and logistics training to tactical training. And that has created this cash cow that is showing up at the end of the Brower's Road. I mean, there is a demand for all sorts of squatted up civilians, whether it's police or special services or secret service, but also for sort of madcap militia who have drunk the Kool Aid about defending the homeland, whether it's from, you know, blacks and women and Muslims and Jews, or I don't know, from Democrats uh, in the Capitol. And the people we spoke to who were training at Oak Grove, this supposedly only-for-sworn professionals facility, said to us that what they saw January 6th was novice behavior. These are militarily trained professionals, some of them with roots in the military, others civilians, who were saying it will be very different next time. So I think the people there in Hoffman, North Carolina, have every right to be afraid. So uh,
1: Christina Davis-McCoy, a- help us out here a little bit, because when I think about, you know, I, I live here in North Carolina, I've-, I've known, you know, the Fayetteville area for a long time, I know a lot of soldiers at Fort Bragg, and they are truly, like, a- ideologically partisanship, racially, quite a diverse crowd. Um, tell me what's going on here that, that makes you think it's something uh, different or-, or more concerning than the long-term military uh, presence in these communities.
4: I think it's quite interesting that you say and mention the fact that uh, those individuals who are connected militarily, you know, we always have had high regard for the military. And it's because we know who they are, what they do. Uh, And there is this kind of structure around them that gives them this legitimacy. The concern and fear about these existing um, tactical training cultural centers, of course, is we don't know them. They are privatized. What are the barriers? What are the standards that they hold in terms of making communities safe?
1: And, and Christina, do, do you have a sense that... Um that the local governance structure, whether it's city council or county commissioners or the state representatives, um, are aware of and and setting any kinds of rules. Um, you know, if if you want to open, uh, you know, a restaurant or or a barbershop shop in town, you have to you know go through certain kinds of, of rules and procedures. Do you have a sense of what the kind of legislative practices are around this?
4: Well, there certainly are structures in place that define and identify how businesses come into being and how they get the kind of permitting through zoning ordinances. But there are these questions about it when, one, the citizens are not made aware of what those rules are and that the governing bodies aren't really clear as well, or that there are these breaking points of communication and information where bodies make decisions and then of course elected officials rubber stamp them because they believe, of course, that these individuals have made decisions in the best interest, best interest of the community. Maybe not best interest of the uh, municipality who are looking to benefit from the economic development piece. So those are the concerns. Is that's what we have to look at: is what's on the books, what regulates them, how well do people know them, and. Can they be challenged if they are not being correctly adhered to? Have you had
1: direct complaints or, or have you worked with resident citizens who have directly complained about specific instances of these practices feeling like a, a real threat to them?
4: Well, I mean, I think that those are the um, most significant concerns for the community in Oak Grove. I think they feel that um, in Hoffman, where Oak Grove is, is currently operating, is that they don't feel safe. They don't feel that they were um, given the opportunity to walk through this process or even object. And when they attempted to, they were dismissed. So, Laura,
1: who do we know is behind these private training facilities? And have you had an opportunity to hear from them what they claim their mission is
0: well that's
5: a great question, Melissa. Um so many things in what we're talking about here. Yes, absolutely. So we went down to Hoffman, uh, North Carolina. It's a tiny town, black town, just uh in in the county of Richmond County. And um, we were told by the people that run this private military training camp that they only work with so-called sworn professionals, police, military, veterans, so forth. But on the day that we were there, actually the third day that I was there, I saw a flag for something called Field Craft Survival. And when I looked that up, that is a survival type training uh, company that trains civilians to become, in their own words, your own first responder. Now, understand that as you will. I'm sure there are a lot of people just seeking to learn how to use their concealed carry permit properly or, you know, use their home protection device in a correct way. But I also found that the people that uh, head up Fieldcraft are the same people who created something called American Contingency in the summer of 2020. And among other things, raised $6,000 for the defense team for uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, who's right now uh, facing charges in the Kenosha killings. I mean, these are not apolitical folks. They're longtime military. The guy who is their tactical commander you know, officer in North Carolina, has 30 years in special ops. Um, He went straight out of the military into this work. That's not good. (laughs) That's (laughs) not good for your brain. It's not good for your health. It's not good for your stress. But I have to say that while this part of the story, you know, the Lori Flanders show, we say it's the place where the people who say it can't be done take a backseat to the people who are doing it. We try to provide glimpses of how people can shift problems in their society for the better. And in the county next door, to Richmond County, in Hoke County, where Christina is. She's being very modest. She was part of a mobilization of local residents that did dig in to the use permits of another private military tactical training facility that wanted to move in close to the capital town of Rayford. And they stopped that through working with the majority black county commissioners who said, We don't want this in our town. And they did it through legal means, looking at zoning ordinances, contesting some of the claims put in the permit request by the company. And they stopped that facility by paying attention to what was happening at the local level. And I guess the message that I received from all the This was we all of us need to pay much more attention to what is happening at our planning boards uh, and pay attention to zoning rules. And also when people seem to be in violation of them, because we don't know where that could go, especially in a militarized state like North Carolina. But it's not just there. It's everywhere.
1: Laura, that, that's so helpful because that's precisely where I wanted to 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 come to with you, uh, Mrs. Davis McCoy. Next, it, it's just this idea of okay, so so we see this happening, um, you know, and I was I wanted to know sort of how communities um, are responding. You know, certainly, again, being being an African American Southerner living in North Carolina, I know that there's also a um, a tradition of self-defense um, that, you know, goes back to a period of of, of Jim Crow. It's not a, um, a tradition of violence. It is, it is truly about the concern about white supremacy or about armed um, whites who might for example, violently overthrow one's government, as w- literally happened in Wilmington, North Carolina um, at the at the turn of the 20th century. So, so I'm wondering about how communities there are thinking about what self-defense looks like in a 2021 context.
4: Interesting question, um, Melissa. I think that more and more people are becoming aware that self-defense is largely going to depend on being aware of what's going on around you making sure that you're talking to one, the officials that you elect uh, to be aware of what's going on in their communities, to make the kinds of decisions that are going to ensure that the development that happens doesn't happen on them, but happens in concert with um, what will ensure that the communities will be safe and secure. Self-defense looks like um, being aware of what's written in terms of Zoning laws, zoning regulations, zoning rules um, determines how people can get permits uh, to come in and do any kind of business in these communities. Being in a highly militarized community um, for me here in Hoke, which neighbors um, Cumberland, which neighbors, of course, and Hoke bears the brunt in terms of the size of the military reservation of Fort Bragg, Um, one third of our county. Um, of course, is on base. So it's important for us to honor and respect the military, but also be aware of individuals who threaten harm simply because they are privatized and we don't know who they are. So the best act of defense is awareness, being aware, um, talking to individuals who you've elected, talking to your neighbors, making sure that you understand what's going on in the community. And when flags are raised then you have to respond positively in terms of becoming more informed and making sure that you're spreading the message about that.
1: Hmm. Uh, Laura, I'm wondering if these um, private training sites are, um, are offering a message of economic development. Are they making claims that, um, that by existing there, they're bringing some kind of either community um, good or economic good? And, and if they are making those claims, I'm wondering if, if you can adjudicate those a bit.
5: Well, they sure are making those claims, Melissa. And for the local community, you know, economic development people, training camps like these are cheap money because they don't require a lot of infrastructure. Backwoods training sites don't need you to lay broadband and um, pave over roads. So it's a it's a cheap facility that promises to bring money back to the county, and in many instances, it does. Oak Grove, in last year, as I understand it, got something like fifty five contracts from the military worth something like $90 million. Now, how much goes to the county versus the little little town? Again, majority black town in a white county. In that one instance of Hoffman, Hoffman over the last 20 years had got something like, I don't know, $10,000 in one contract. I think that's actually the number. I mean, we're not talking huge amounts of money for the county either. And when it comes to tax income, well, the county commissioners told us he'd asked that question many times and simply gotten no answer. I should say for the TV show, I called both Fieldcraft Survival and Oak Grove. They both hung up on me, but you can meet them both on the show.
1: Laura Flanders is the host of The Laura Flanders Show, and you can find that on public television, also, of course, over on YouTube. And Christina Davis-McCoy is the secretary of the Hoke County chapter of the NAACP, and she just redefined self-defense for the 21st century. Thank you both for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, folks, that's all the politics we have for you today. And thanks for being here with us. Before I go, I want to give a huge shout out to the team who helps make this show happen. Our senior producer is Ethan Oberman. Our producers are Meg Dalton, Katerina Barton, Deborah Goldstein, and Joseph Gedeon. Shanta Covington is our planning editor. Zachary Bynum is our digital editor. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer, Jay Cowett is our director, and they both sound design the extravaganza that is The Takeaway every week. Jackie Martin is our line producer, and David Gable is our executive assistant, and he got a big old promotion this week. Mary Croak is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway.